We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped cum to teeth at your throat tiger without a little help, some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Well, for the holidays, we thought it'd be fun to share a conversation that Dave and I had a while back with one of the students from my writing class, B. When we initially recorded the episode for Dave's show, Outer Worlds, Bea had just begun to define the setting in which her story takes place. So we invited her to share a few of the most essential truths about her world, former Princess Emery, and the nefarious villain, Tarek, who was visited by an idea most unusual and strange. That said, there are a couple topics discussed that I would approach differently today, most notably race. In fantasy tales, these are often distinct and discrete groups of people, with their own origins, history, presumed biologies, and one unique trait. Though these frequently tend to borrow, mimic, or outright appropriate from folks in our own world and their lived experiences without much thought or respect to who takes. Or how we as creators profit while things deemed too fraught are left off the page. Turns out it's hard work making a world, even more so the people who shape, and all the particular details as well as their impact that you have to contemplate. But it's worth it, I promise you, as you'll see today. We hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Otter Worlds. I am your host, David Herman, a.k.a. Ramnestis of the Brothers Herman. And with me tonight are my panel. Hi, I'm Jared Zerf, host of Here Be Tigers, the only podcast show where you can take life by the tail. <laughs> and I'm B of the Internet. Hello. Hi, B. For those of you who don't yeah. know, B is a member of our storytelling workshop, and she has volunteered her world and her creation for Dave and I to destroy. <laughs> so excited. <laughs> <laughs> Pardon, destruction test, I suppose. Indeed. Right. So uh, we're doing this on Otter Worlds because uh, one of the things we do on Otter Worlds is we'll sometimes set up for, you know, uh, in, in, a, in a game world uh, kind of situation. Uh, we'll build a world, we'll build events in that world that are happening and focus on things like themes and balance and, and why certain things should work the way that they do. Uh, now your uh, now be your your world was is not intended as a game world, but many of the same principles should still apply. Correct. So um, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about um, what you have in mind, um, what has been established so far, and then a couple of ideas of where you're interested in expanding to. Okay, so not as I haven't really done very much as I would have liked, but I do have a basis for my world and idea that I have. Most of it is based off of feeling and how I feel like in my head. That's how I'm picturing the world. Um, so, but I'm very open-minded to a lot of just different ideas. But definitely, like my idea for this world so far, because I'm just still in the very first phases of it. It's really kind of like if anyone's watched the movie Avatar. 
it's just very natural based. Um, it's not, doesn't have a bunch of buildings or anything like that. It's just very naturistic, um, very heavily filled with plantation, you know, trees, different ecosystems, very rich in life. So that's like an idea. Um, and then as for like creatures there, it's because it's fantasy based, it's kind of like, it's kind of like leading it to your own imagination. Um, there's fairies, there's um, werewolves, there's cat people, there's <laughs> there's a, d- a bunch of different, it's a very diverse world. Um, and I feel like the best way I can explain it is it's kind of like you can just imagine something and it, it's there, I guess you can say. Um, it's a very, and it, it's a very thriving world too. There's not quite a lot of chaos yet so far. At the beginning of the book, it all seems very peaceful, but obviously certain events will take start to take place in the story later on that will obviously cause more destruction and chaos and all that good stuff. <laughs> the reasons people read stories. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so I get the sense that your world is magical, but if we're going off of the idea of something like Avatar, the last airbender, the magic is not so much a foreign presence in the world as much as a natural extension or expression of it. Well, really quickly, uh, I want to clarify Avatar, the last airbender or Avatar, uh, the the movie on Pandora. Pandora, thank oh, you. Oh, okay, <laughs> very well then. That yes, actually, that you know, that still applies because <laughs> the apply, the but... magic of Pandora is inherent or built upon the way life itself emerged on that planet. And I use Correct. magic in yes. the loosest sense of the world here to describe the rules by which the world works. Mm-hmm. I look at this and I see you've got you've got a. You've got a couple of things that you've established. Uh, one is an element of endless possibility. One is an element of the, the fact that things are seem to be going fairly well. Maybe not on an individual level, but on a world level, things are fairly peaceful at the moment. Right. Um, and and the other and the third thing is that everything is thriving. Now, if you're going to be bringing in chaos into this situation, one at least one of those three needs to. It seems to me needs to. Come is under one assault. of those three is Tim Curry? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Toxic no. love. <laughs> oh come on, B, you've seen Fern Gully, haven't you? I love Fern Gully. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> If uh, so, so uh, just spitballing here. If if you're going to bring endless possibility under threat, something needs to be curtailing that possibility, possibly inflicting rules and an unasked for order on things, um, or possibly uh, um, creating regions that people can no longer go to. Uh, if it's going to be peaceful, something's going to be disordering everything. Something's got to be drawing people into conflict that they cannot escape from. And if it's okay. going to be uh, attacking the vibrancy, it's got to be somehow eliminating it. Things are, you're, you're going to be looking at sickness or death or stagnancy. For okay. instance, the classic short story, The Color Out of Space. Indeed. Have you read that one? No, I have not. So it's a, it's a Lovecraft one, but basically something from space that is mostly not defined because Lovecraft very often didn't uh, comes down and it starts corrupting. I think it's a farm mm-hmm. uh, and starts corrupting the crops on the farm and the family on the farm so that they act in a more and more alien manner. And what was a place of, of food and sustenance becomes a place of corruption and uh, infection. Which I think part of the reason Lovecraft leaves it undefined here is that could just as easily be a biological cause as a metaphysical or a magical one. It, the reason isn't 
necessary to define there. The effect is what's important. And I think that brings up one of the few, I wouldn't call it rules, but thing, but notions I think we should adhere to for the episode. Because it's gotcha. something I've observed in fiction. We're talking in books and film and video games, etc., where the creators often confuse the expression of magic versus what it does. I'm, so I'm putting card before a horse here. The notion I'd like to play with is the idea that magic is in the affect, not the effect. What magic results in is not the subject of discussion. The feel of it, how it goes about doing those, or how it goes about achieving those results. Knowing that is essential to seeing how it shapes the world, when people use it and why when they don't. Does, for instance, magic replicate things that you can do otherwise but at a cost? That's a classic one. Or mm -hmm. can magic achieve something that nothing else can? If so, why? What allows for that? So I... Now there's a there's a secondary side to this, too. I would put it as my primary magic. Mm -hmm. The ability of magic to solve a uh, um, to solve a problem is directly proportional to how much the audience can understand and or predict it. In other words, take Lord of the Rings. Gandalf's powers are very undefined, and therefore, while he may solve some problems short term, he is his magic is never the solution. His presence might be the solution, but not his magic. Flipped back on the on the opposite side of the spectrum, go to Harry Potter, where they where where uh, they spend you know seven books, movies, what have you, explaining magic to you, getting you familiar with it. Magic is much more capable of solving a problem because we understand more about how it works. We don't have to know all the rules, but we have to have a sense of what it can and cannot do, and where we can rely on it and and cannot. Contrast, I think, kind of the middle ground, which would be the book series slash television series, The Magicians, where magic has rules, you will never fully understand them. And even if you understand those rules, the gods can change them when they get mad at you. So there's this sense that it is capricious at its fundamental nature, and everything but humans accepts that. So this whole idea, this whole notion that magic can be ruled is purely a human one. And I think that's where we get back into that question of the affect and what it can or We don't have to look purely in terms of universals here. It's not just as in, here's the way magic works for everything on the earth. There can certainly right. be that element of it, but how various beings or ways or groups of people or individuals view that potential, that resource can vary. Let me ask you, B, and perhaps we'll do this through null hypothesis. What mm -hmm. kinds of magic have you seen in fiction and storytelling and video games, et cetera, that you've liked and what haven't you liked? In other words, what versions of things would you like to apply or adapt or play with? And what would you go, what have you looked at and seen, and seen and said, that would never happen in my world? Gotcha. Definitely. I really like the idea. I know there's a lot of different ideas people have played around with, with like the Fae, but I definitely like the idea of the Fae being, I, at least in the books and the shows I have read and watched, I've always seen the Fae being portrayed as people who are very ancient. Um, they're one of the races of whatever world they're a part of that have lived for a very long time. Um, and they're, so they're just ancient creatures and they hold a lot of power. As for like powers and like what they do, like little powers, it's kind of hard because there's actually quite a lot <laughs> um, that I've seen. Um, and it's kind of hard to pinpoint which ones I actually okay, like. Okay, so let, let's, like. that, that's the effect. Let's talk the affect. Is, is one okay. of the defining features of the Fae that they are unique and varied. Mm -hmm. I guess what I'm trying to, are the Fae, by, are the Fae as a kind of people or, 
are they uniform in a certain way or are they more just so distinct and weird? Have they gone down so many unusual little evolutionary branches that it would almost be hard to believe or identify these two as the same kind of base species or, or, or having the same origins? I'd say probably the latter. The latter feels more what I'm looking for. So they've had Um, a lot, they've had a long time to evolve. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) Right. So what we're looking at here is a world in which the Fae are ancient and peculiar. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. And why is that? I guess what comes to mind is uh, some things that I had thought about with this, my world, um, is that I was going to originally have, didn't really, again, I haven't really clarified, but I was thinking of this idea of picking out a few specific races, whether, and just to go off of an example, Let's say that I uh, did werewolves, fae, vampires, and uh, sorcerers. Um, those were going to be like the four races that have lived the longest on mm-hmm. the world. So, like my idea um, was to figure out what races I wanted to be. Kind of like they're kind of more superior to the other races um, because they're in my world. Like I was t- saying, there's going to be a big variety of different um, types of creatures, people, people who can do magic. So I was going to have originally have like a baseline for who had lived the longest on that world and who kind of had the most influence based on the fact that they lived the longest, their race lived the longest. It almost sounds to me, and Dave, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, like those who are at the peak, the pinnacle of the evolutionary path here, or those who have consolidated their, we'll call it magic for now, but who have the greatest access to it, are happen as a result of being in this world. There's something intrinsic or inherent to the world that allows for that or that enables it. Mm -hmm. The other thing that popped into my head when you were describing that is that those four might, whether deliberately or otherwise, have been responsible for the existence of everyone else. Uh Right. It Uh, feels like they're the most saturated and therefore would probably be the most willing to do something about the powers they have or with the powers they have. Yeah, it definitely sounds like they're drawing on this planet, which again goes back to that uh, to that whole Avatar thing, that they are intrinsically linked with this world. Maybe planet's the wrong term, it, uh, depending on how you want to do it, but um, the, the, but this world, oh, this it, continent, it, it's all a location is. It's Tarrasque all the way down. <laughs> <laughs> One of the biggest things you can do to find a starting point is to think of a theme. Um, or an idea or, or a fundamental conflict you want to tackle in this story. And then just seeing how far that'll take you. Like what about the world would, would uh, play into that theme. And then you, and then you start bringing that in. For instance, in the first season, we began with, I believe the idea of the Mayfly December. Yes. Wife. Yes. What does, uh, what does the Mayfly think when uh, night falls? Uh, it's a, for the for a mayfly, which lives only twenty four hours. It must seem like the end of the world to us. It's the end of a day. Mm-hmm. It's, um, so so we, that was that was one of the themes that we went with, uh, and then just saw well, what what could we do in this one? You've got uh, you could have something like what happens. Well, you know what happens when Eden comes to an end, right? Um, it's it, because it sounds to me like there's still something nascent about this world. It has not yet gone through. It either has not yet gone through the struggles that it will, or mm-hmm. those are so long in the past that no one remembers anymore. Ah, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. So, is this a world newly born or one ancient and near the end? <laughs> uh I I kind of want to say that it's not necessarily 
towards the end. I'd say it's more towards in between the middle and the end, if that makes any sense. Okay, so we're kind of like at the at the point of the turning of an age. So like, a change is going to come. Yes, exactly. That's Yeah, that's definitely a, a goal I have. There's going to be a change. And that might be a natural part of the cycle of this kind of world to begin with. It might be something forced or brought upon it. But there is a change on a fundamental level that's going to affect everything else. And that as a theme means every being that has a say or wants to have a say will try to act in this moment. Right, so, exactly. Here are two questions. That if, if they don't seem to fit, don't worry about them. But there are, okay. um, there are two questions that I have. What is someone who a large amount of people in this world remember always being there. It doesn't have to be an individual person, but it could, you know, but it would make a lot of sense if it was. Um, That is no longer going to be there before too much longer. They may not know he's no longer going to be there or she's no longer going to be there or it's no longer going to be there, but it's something that has been a, um, an absolute, you know, foundation, foundational rock of this world that is no longer going to be there before this story is done. Yes, actually, that is true. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just remembering something um, that I had written down a while ago when okay. I was just brainstorming. So an idea that I was thinking of so long ago, like I didn't really date it. We'll just kind of play around with it. It could be 500 years, um, a thousand years. Point being, it was a long time ago. There was this big war. One of a big element of my story that I wanted to incorporate was dragons. And 500 years ago, there used to dragons just as they are, used to roam this world. If we're going to go back to, again, the idea of ancient races, they are the most ancient of any race. Any creature, any being, they are the most ancient. Now there is but one dragon left. Yes, 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 exactly, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, and point being, these dragons, some are good, some are bad, but... A one one dragon in particular who did not like humans, did not like any anything other than their own race. Again, going back to the idea of wanting to be in command, superiority over everyone, all that good stuff, wanting command of the whole world. This dragon, this bad dragon, wanted to take over and wanted to destroy all the other races that existed. So what I was playing up in my head, there was going to be like 15, just a number, 15 sorcerers or sorceresses Basically, 15 powerful people were going to stop this from happening. And one very influential sorceress, a woman, um, she was kind of the key to stopping this from happening, this total, you know, worldwide destruction that this dragon wanted to do. So she would have, she would probably, she was an idea of being like a rock to any society in this world as of currently in Emery's time. But she was going, something was going to happen to her. I did, again, I didn't know what that was going to be, but. Okay. Yeah, so she was going to be that idea. Here's what here's what I'm seeing as you describe this, because when you first talked about dragons battling for dom- dominion over the land, I thought if there is truly a one dragon left, I would rather it be the one who is the biggest bastard of them all, not because yes. that's going to be the threat returned, but in the time intervening between the fight and being sealed and now, that being will have had forever to reflect upon everything that has led it to this point, and it will be too mm-hmm. old and too bitter and too ancient and tired. To really care any more about all of that, but it also is also it also is the only one who retains the wisdom, the power, and the knowledge from that time. So whatever threat, whatever change occurs, this dragon too is going to be caught up in that. It is not, even though people might believe it's returned to be, it is not the actual threat. And so there right. might be this earlier arc of, or this 
concern as the old sorcerers, wherever the, wherever the seals are, fall away, and everyone anticipates, oh, it's he's coming back or she's coming back. And by the time, perhaps it is M or someone else, although I feel like it's M, finds this ancient beast and is there mm-hmm. to challenge, and I, you know, I slay thee by the power of Grabnock, etc. <laughs> the beast just bats an eye and goes, and either says, all right, fine, thanks, or just sighs and tries to lay out for our poor hero trapped in one genre that this is not the thing that matters. Hmm. Right. That right. Uh, might have a might have a scene that's like, all right, go ahead, here spot right here, and have that fail. Actually because- even instead of the dialogue, you just have the classic tap right on the spot. Oh yeah, there right. you go. So, or you know, she's sitting there stabbing, 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 because the dragon's sleeping, right? Or it's sealed away, it's only barely conscious, and finally she's prying at what's supposed to be the legendary weak spot. And this huge, massive claw lifts up out of the ground and the soil and the seals, searches a little bit, and then taps further down in the head mm-hmm. and waits for M to try again. <laughs> and that's maybe when she begins to understand, oh, wait, something is strange and different here. The world is not going. It's not just that the, it's not just that the world is changing towards something else. The way the world is supposed to be itself has changed. It's no longer about felling the ancient beast. The rules of the right. narrative are different. Mm-hmm. Um, you could you could also take a humorous moment at that right there when the dragon directs her to like one weak spot after the other, and the, and the final <laughs> one is actually just something where it had like a really bad itch, and it's like, oh, <laughs> exactly. Oh, he's been in my he's been in my maw for at least three hundred years. Thank you for that. <laughs> uh, but following up on the this is the the, the narrative has changed that this is uh, um, something uh, different. What is my second question was what is something that people used to be able to do that they're that they are finding it less and less uh, that they're finding it harder and harder to do or what is something that people could not do before that is becoming possible? It can be anything. It doesn't have to be like anything in particular. Nope. It can be yeah, anything it, weird. It, can be anything normal, mundane that's now possible. The biggest thing is it should be something that is at the very least disconcerting and starting to have an effect on the way people interact with each other. Uh, so it, it's, it either breaks some limit or it imposes some limit. <laughs> well, if we're talking old anime, they now have noses. <laughs> <laughs> right. They can smell the world finally, and they are that horrified. So funny. <laughs> I mean, it could be something like that, though. It could be... If I wanted it to be. Like psychic powers. They're starting to be able to hear each other's thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, it should or, be weird to them. It doesn't have to be weird to us, but it should be weird to them. Weird to them, yeah. Weird to what they're used to being normal, and then this right. discerning thing, yeah, comes into existence. Nothing comes to mind at the moment. <laughs> All right, so what that says to me is we will need to spend a little time working on their every day. Yes, what is the normal right, yeah. first, and then we'll find the deviation. Yes. Yeah. So if this is an abundant world, if there is usually or generally enough for everyone, food, resources by which to make a home and shelter. Conflict is more incidental. It's more about things that aren't perhaps as immediate. It's more of ideas. It's more like, what are the things people fight or trade or or argue about? Where does the tension arise? Or does that, or weirdly enough, is the lack of tension the normal thing? Is the lackadaisical life, things have been so long in this moment of quiet that an actual fight is the weird thing? Yeah, the, the people have a lot of different competitive ways of of showing 
that uh, you know of ha- of dealing with that conflict, whether it be you know something like a, a fight to first blood rather than any kind of serious thing, or uh, you know a fight uh, like we should. Uh, there's one I used to see on the forums all, all the time. There was this guy who would always challenge people to a knife fight, but he'd always add the most ridiculous things to the end of it, which would be stuff like, "Well, then we shall fight with the knives of conflict resolution," mm-hmm. or, or things like that. But yeah, you know things like debates or you know uh, uh challenges or things that are non-lethal but prove things in that which way. case the, the the truest sign is the first murder or the first if not the first it might not even be perceived as a murder first because it'd just be a horrifyingly gruesome injury you're trying to draw first blood but you slip or presumably because the thing i'm looking at here is what changes is it the world itself shifting to allow for these things is it the way the person's mind or desires darken or twist or color a little differently in that moment or to put or to bring this back around to to approach it from a different side Mm -hmm. we know a little bit about what you're you know uh, about your character we know a little bit about the fact that she's had to go into hiding clearly there's a reason for that so whatever forced it might have a lot to do with what this changes oh there we go yeah if oh go ahead if you have an idea say it so originally, uh, this person that's chasing Emery, uh, this person is uh, the one that had killed her parents, um, that left her as an orphan. So we're just, uh, originally his name is Tarek. Um, I did have an, an idea for that. And actually, now that you mentioned that he actually, if I'm thinking back on how I brainstormed him and everything and how I made him his abilities in the world and what his purpose was, he kind of seems like he fits that idea of shifting the world itself. And shifting this peaceful harmonious world into a chaotic you know oh, dark the, there we yeah. go then the, the 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 here's the first real sign and you could even just narrate this okay mm-hmm. uh, again i'm just playing off of what you say so yeah i can see I, i'm not sure exactly how the phrasing goes but Tarek had a dangerous thing on that day Tarek had an idea and it sounds innocuous to us at first until you start unraveling the little threads of thought that Tarek is playing with here. What if this and what if that and what if that? And at the very end of it, the thing he arrives at is, oh, and all I have to do is make them die. Mm-hmm. That's just the little quiet chapter. It's the birth of that first little flower of a strange idea, or not strange to, strange to them, but just of an idea, of a that, that, murderous, that murderous intent is now possible, or that people would think in that way is something that's changed. I just, because it sounds to me like, go ahead. Which has two very interesting ramifications on what has already been said. The first is, if Tarek is one of the first people to see making other people die as a means to their own ambitions, then that means that the dragon wasn't doing that. (laughs) (laughs) It also means that M, if she actually tries to slay the dragon, has been corrupted by that idea already. That 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 making someone die is And it would make sense for M to be corrupted by that idea or to be affected by it because she would have been shielded from it prob oh God. That's why and, the glamours are put on her. And it or, or mm-hmm. I mean whereas whereas what my mind went to was that part of the story, part of her character beats, was her coming to the conclusion of that, 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 that killing people, that using this idea of making people die was a reasonable thing to use to defend herself against uh, someone else making people die. Right. It, uh, uh, 
I think there's kind of twofold into it. There has to be at least some understanding from the adults that there's a there's a corrupting force. So they, uh, we had in the and B, you can tell me if this is still something using this notion that M's identity is being guised, is being glamoured or hidden. So and that's traditionally done so that spirits or outside forces can't affect the real being. They can yes. play off of the poppet or the moment or the the similar craw of what this person is and leave the actual personal the individual alone. So mm-hmm. maybe for the longest time, then M isn't exposed to whatever touched Tark, because all of that is still she's being shielded by the by this protecting or this guardian item or this piece on her, and this ident- this all this craftsmanship her aunt is focused on to create an M who isn't M, so that that is the thing taken away or influenced or darkened. But actually, the there way. is that one. There's one other entity that makes a lot of sense to do something like that. Now, now I, I like the idea of glamours on him. You're talking about Tim Curry, right? I'm talking about the trickster. That's true. I'm going back to the idea of just going to paint an idea here. The, uh, maybe the, it's maybe the, the tricksters met her once before, maybe not. Uh, but there is the idea when we're the fae are involved of the, the changeling, a child that is stolen by the fae and a false child is left in its place. Uh, now, that can be used in a lot of different ways. One that isn't very often used in the stories is that as a method of protection of the child. Oh, God, so, M's her own changeling. Oh, well, no, I, I think part of I was so, so one idea that was potential that I potentially had was that um, when M went into hiding, there is a changeling in her place. So people don't necessarily know she's in hiding. Right. Which means there was and, a negotiation of some kind with the Fae. Right. And when Tarek killed the changeling. That would be a moment where that idea of kill uh, of killing infected her, because she's still bound to the changeling. Exactly, but she didn't die. Right, she doesn't die, but that taint is there. The whatever guards or shields or protects her from that. But as she's chased out of her home, that whole aegis is removed and torn away, and she's left with a creature whose more whose basest desire is to find out her secrets. And also, she is now one of the few people in this world, so Tarek has risen as someone will kill uh, to achieve their own ends. And she is, and M is now someone who has died and yet lives. Both of them have broken fundamental rules to the way the world li- exists, is supposed to be, or exists. Which now you have a setup of why the, two, why the two of them will forever keep coming into contact with each other and why the story might revolve Because he wants them. to kill that which cannot be killed. She already, she's already dead. He can't kill her again. As far as the world's concerned, she died. Mm-hmm. But she. This is partially playing off of the movie Double Jeopardy, where a woman. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, the stuff. In a legal sense, I mean, because the, the Fey, the, the Fey are a very legal creatures, but they're also very tied into the fundamental well, forces. You see, of and that's the thing. Like, you, I can see a scene where Tarek would try and finally be able to kill her, and the Fey would intervene on the following grounds that you cannot. You have done this already. A thing can only die once and she is dead. And he can argue all he wants that she's there and the fake can go, but that's not her. You killed her. Mm-hmm. Which makes the tension of then Leo, this other character who wants to rebel and usurp the powers that be, wanting M to be M even more of a complication because M is dead. Or Emery the princess is dead, so who the hell is M? Exactly. And what I start to see here is a world that existed in a fairy tale like sense. Mm-hmm. slowly crumbling away to reveal something more complex. It's, exactly. It, it's almost like you basically had a play that was going on. Like, let's say it was a play like, you know, Macbeth or something like that. I love and that it, one. Except one of the characters 
is an actual serial killer. No, one of the, right. one of the actors is an actual serial killer who is going through the play and killing the other actors. And yeah. the play is trying to continue without the actors to fulfill their roles. That makes the out damn spot scene so just so magical. <laughs> out damn spot. <laughs> By the way, the trickster's name is Spot. Oh my gosh, perfect. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> I like it. Because I know, or I know during the session we had done in class, there's this idea of that Leo, this one who wants M to be who she was, is going to, in a sense, be at odds with this creature, this trickster, who wants to understand M's many layers of secrets. There's the personal ones. You're a princess. You're not who you're supposed to be, but why is that? And then there's truly the, the deepest one of all, which is that you, your existence changes the world. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the interesting journey there for M as a character and for the world itself is, does whether or not M takes ownership of that, and if so, how? Again, magic is in the affect, not the effect. How does her actions, how do her actions alter the world around her? And it sounds like we also now potentially have a source for her special abilities, which is precisely because she's not following the rules of the world, and therefore she can do things that a normal person cannot do because she's no longer limited. But the, 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 the structure of the story... Well, here's another way of putting it. Think of all the ghosts you've seen in Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. She has access to those abilities, but she's still alive. Correct. Because she can... I don't know if the world of the dead is a separate world in a sense, or if it is a separate way of being in the world, or a different way of being in the world. That I have not clarified yet. <laughs> well, let's play around with it. Yeah, that's really fine. We definitely can do that. I feel like part of what this story is going to do on a large sense is play off of the expectations we, and with the expectations we have of fantasy and fairy tale. Mm-hmm. And so, that's, that, that's what I want to do. Yeah. I definitely want to play off of the idea of people's generalized ideas from movies, from books, how they see a fairy tale. I really want to try to, again, just totally expand upon that and just totally flip it to something totally different. You know what I'm saying? Right, which is why... That's my hope. <laughs> if there are vampires and werewolves and other fantastic beings in the world, we want to look at their everydayness, what makes their life happen and go by day to day, and where do they fit and where do they not? Are vampires, for instance, undead in the classic sense, or are they simply a type of being that is entirely bound by the nature of blood or a power they have to drain? is, for instance, a vampire who must sustain itself on something else somehow. Right. So what are the... I know, Dave, you and I played with this during the Mayfly December game where we started to look at what made a traditional sorcerer or sage or druid and ultimately discovered that the monsters and those who wish to understand the world were two parts of the same cycle. Mm -hmm. I guess the question is, if these beings exist in the world and are ancient and weird and strange, and then there's the everyday humans or the normal-ish, the more normal folk... Mm-hmm. Who's going to embrace M? Who's going to be scared by her? Because you have this, you have this, you have this kind of roving line of tension throughout your world. You've got M fleeing to wherever she's supposed to go. The people who will welcome her there, and then Tarek and the people who will chase her. So throughout this entire peaceful world you've created and established, there's this angry, vicious thread running amok. Correct. And that feels like it's just going to unravel anything in its path or everything in its path. So if we look at the everyday, then we can treat M and everything following her as the disaster that cuts all of that away. I mean, from the point of view of a lot of people, Tarek's actually dangerous to be around because he like like in the sense that he's he's more dangerous, like intentionally 
But right. M is just as dangerous as, as he is unintentionally. Right. They both are distorting the world around them. And I guess that's where we can start to play off of ideas like Color Out of Space, where typically the hero only goes through a place once on that journey and doesn't get to see what happens in their wake or hear about it. That's not always the case, but the ramifications of Emery continue to, continuing to run, continuing to be chased without her fully understanding the effect that has on the world around her. And this is where I think something like the dragon, for instance, if she believes that is the source of the cause of the chaos, would be an interesting note to, ch- to shift or change things. Because here she's thinking, finally, I've got the power. I know how to use it. I can kill the thing that is the source of all this wrongness in the world. And the dragon takes one look at her and goes, oh, this is how I end. Hmm. This is how mm-hmm. we end. This is the mm-hmm. end. Hmm. Or the dragon lays uh, lays it on thick in another way and goes, oh, yeah, no, this is not my evil. Your kind created this one. Okay. All on you. You want to use that sword in anything, point it at yourself. Right. And I think that's that's the viciousness of the dragon. It's not, and it, sure, it could probably with a flick of its talon turn her to dust, but the viciousness of the dragon is his willingness to lay out the brutal absolutes that M doesn't want to face. Right, Exactly. And in fact, that could be exactly how it was going around and conquering before. It has the power to turn people to dust, but Tarek's the first person who would, or, or that who would kill that we either that or the sorceress kind of fundamentally changed the world, ending the dragon's previous reign, and that's why no one's done it since. I almost feel um, like if the dragon's power is truth, then they have to use secrets to seal it away. Ooh, I like that one. Yeah, I, I like the idea that the dragon is, yeah, just Ooh, unleashing cut. unpleasant truths. Go ahead. Sorry. I like that idea, too, because if, again, going off of the idea of it just being a very harmonious world and everyone wants peace and they try to keep they try to maintain peace as their main motivation, the fact that they're, you know, for instance, like the dragon, he only speaks the truth. Some people don't want to face the truth. They don't want to face if we're going to kind of internalize it. They want to face the fact that they're not everyone's good, that people are bad. So kind of incorporating that little small theme too, like there's good and bad both in people and in I, I kind of feel like we have to play off of a classic fairy tale trope here. And at some point, end games the wisdom or understanding that part of what she needs to defeat Tarek or undo what he's created here is an unpleasant truth. Yes. And so she thinks she's going to find this ancient weapon or this sword, and that for in fact it may even have the inscription or phrase on it, at the unpleasant truth. But all it does in actuality is lead her to the dragon. Mm-hmm. Or in some other way or shape or form, bring her back to that, where she's thinking this is going to be the power that slays the source, but the weapon itself, the unpleasant truth she's going to receive, is the beast whose power that is. Oh, that sets up an interesting scene. Like, um, no details, but she's she's running. She runs to the dragon. Tarek is following. And before that encounter is done, the dragon will be dead. But he will have laid an incredibly unpleasant truth on each of them, one one for each of them, and they will bear it for the rest of their story. Because that was the only place, and maybe that's, she needed that power, is the only place Tara could be changed in that way. Mm-hmm. He's become so immutable in his intensity and his focus on just killing her to the extent, to the exemption of everything else in the world. And perhaps that's part of how he changes. The more and more he chases or her, the more and more he becomes just about the chase. Till it's almost a sense of playing the wild hunt itself, that this elf left alone could perpetuate for ages, for ages and tear the world up around them. But like any good fairy tale, nothing comes without a cost. 
Which is why she will be changed by the event, too. So facing the dragon ends the chase, but it changes it changes something else about them, too. Correct. That feels like the end of a good book one, doesn't it? <laughs> right? She gets away, but at what cost? In that sense, you look at characters like the trickster, like Leo and the others around her, and what they want out of the world and how that reflects or is altered by this journey she's trying to undertake, and how they're in all likelihood, if they're around her for any way in time, changed. If this trickster is part of a people whose nature it is to understand secrets, it's now found a secret that none of its kind ever have before. And maybe it's the kind of thing that it can never share or doesn't or realize if it did, would destroy its own would destroy its kind entirely. That sounds like a fun plot twist to hear in book two, that uh, the trickster was there with the, with the other two, but it's not a major part of the resolution of book one, so you wouldn't bring it in then. No, you, but it you, will set the stage for later. That's just something as simple as M leaving, and you see there in the bushes or something the creature hiding or shying away, and that, just, that description of that look of how it's somehow been changed. You don't have to go into detail, but just in the affect. In the, so this isn't a great one in terms of how it's done, but in the uh, fantasy series Dragonlance, there are this race of small creatures called Kender, and they're most quote-unquote endearing features that they are immune to fear, which often is played up during the initial narratives, because as uh, the little thief wantonly or brazenly going up to minotaurs, dragons, and anything else in the world, armies included, and just saying the absolutely most insane, offensive, or ugly thing to them, and still getting away. The shenanigans eventually happen, Angry God comes up and tries to destroy the world. But the, the way the Kendra changes is that they, some of them lose their fear, which means that dragons now terrify them. And as most people in the world look upon them, they no longer even see them as Kendra anymore because that was so much their defining trait. So you begin to wonder then if this creature has a secret that it can never tell, or if it now has a truth, an unpleasant, awful, horrible truth among the many secrets it doesn't want to share, it can only do so at the cost of no longer remaining itself. Okay. And Leo, hmm, we'll get to that. I'm just... <laughs> right? Part of this, is like with any world-building exercise, is that once you grab onto that thread, just pulling and pulling and pulling to see what unravels. Which begs a question. We know in this scene that's being set up that we're going to deal with in another episode that there is someone else after her, this, this uh, woman you've called the Huntress. Mm-hmm. Yes. What's her relation to Tarek? Although I didn't get to explain it in the session when we were just kind of playing around with the scene, my mentality for this um, was that the Huntress, she was kind of kind of be like Tarek's like right hand man when it came to doing his bidding, taking care of things that he needed to get done to help him achieve his ambitions or whatever his ambition was during that time, the move or the scene or the chapter, whatever it is. So she's kind of like the second in command when it comes to him. She's the one who. She, for the time being, at the beginning of the novel, she will be she'll, she'll be the main antagonist, but she won't be later on 
Emery will figure out that it, it's not just her. It she's not the problem. It's Tarek that's the problem. She she's doesn't know that Tarek is after her. She just knows that this trio of warriors, the hunters being the leader of this trio, these are the people that have been after her all this time. So she thinks. So yeah. So this is sort of the story of her childhood. The huntress is the main is one of the main antagonists of childhood, and part yes. of her becoming an adult is going to be the story of how she learns Tarek is after her, and how she learns the 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 nature of her current nature. Yes, exactly. I, I, which means the changeling narrative gets revealed at some point during the arc of the huntress and ch- the huntress chasing her. Right. Or if not revealed, then indicated or hinted at. There's right. be, some of that truth has to come out. Right. Otherwise, why would the huntress be after her? Mm-hmm. And two, maybe even that beginning hint that she was something before, but has been changed by whatever possessed Tarek in the first place. And I think in a way, possessed is the right word, because it should seem to others like an outside or otherworldly force. But he has been possessed, of course, by an idea. Yes, right. And what is the most dangerous thing in a world built on stories but an idea? Exactly. Oh, no, it's a straight plot thread. <laughs> Quickly, before it kills us all. <laughs> you know, That's that- actually what we've described here, is that them doing this chase that bears nothing on the nature of the world is, in fact, binding up the world in a completely different plot thread. That will forever change it. Mm-hmm. For how many centuries after this point will chases be the way of things? You are describing a world in which Itchy and Scratchy is the Bible. <laughs> You're describing our world now. <laughs> Don't do that, by the way. <laughs> Don't do that. And that's how the earth came to be. Oh, God. Right. We don't usually say no to certain things, but just for the sake of seeing where else the tale could go. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> so... One other plot thread to pull on is, okay, Tarek has been possessed by an idea. This idea includes that he may kill his way to the top, but he's, and while you could have that be the sum totality of it, that's an alien enough concept that it, 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 it uh, is really messing with the world. I wouldn't recommend it as, as a, as an element of the world, it makes a lot of sense, but as an element of the narrative, mm-hmm. it's going to be harder for the audience to follow. So he's also going to want, to, you're also going to want him to have him want something. There's, there's something that he's using this new idea of his to accomplish. I guess the first question is, who is he in relation to Emmett and her parents? That this would have been the desire to have what they have, to know what they have and to want it. Not just as an intangible from someone far outside the castle, but as someone who knows what they have and wants it, whatever that is, right. some ancient magic, some truth, some some absolute. Mm-hmm. He could be a failed vampire. His, the difference in him could have started with something to do with death. It ties into the themes. It doesn't it, it's not what gave him the idea, but it, it does give him a suitably mythic background. Uh, it's what make him that didn't die in the process of becoming a vampire, for instance. Yeah. In other words, I mean, what would death make him is still a possibility in this world, just not killing yeah. is one way of handling it. In other words, what would right. make him the perfect receptacle for that idea? Because I still think we need to tug a little bit at where the idea itself comes from. Yeah. But what makes him the right receptacle for the idea? So we're talking about Emery's father or her mother? Is uh, Tarek? Unless Tar- he, oh, Tarek. Unless Tarek. he is her father. <laughs> oh my gosh, right? Um, <laughs> the villain being the hero's fault and parent, of course. I've heard that many times. Um, no idea what you're talking about. 
yeah. And I mean, now that I think about it, I mean, I had an idea for like, again, thinking about what his power was, what his influence was, but I never really quite thought about what he could be besides the fact that he creates such a change in the world. So I guess um, obviously he has to have some sort of like power to do that. So here's the real question then. Well, um, go ahead. before you go to the real question, there is one mythic event that you have tied in that it would absolutely, you know, it would work to have him linked to it, but not necessarily to have the event have anything to do with uh, this idea that he's had. But he could have been one of the 15 powerful people that sealed the dragon, not the mm-hmm. most powerful. He could have been an acolyte of the sorceress. Mm. And then something's happened to him over the last 500 years. So the question I have then is, what does he cherish, want, or desire above all else? I'd say kind of go back to the the theme of the dragon from long ago. He wants power. Right. Power is an instrument. What does he want the power for? Okay. Before you answer, let me give you an example, right? Yeah. (laughs) So I've never been a huge fan of the Tales series, but I decided to indulge in Tales of Vesperia, which is considered the gem among them. And there are many great things about it, but it is one widely known flaw, and that is the antagonist. The antagonist wants the magical artifact that fought back the world-ending monstrosity that nearly devoured everyone. Why does he want the magical artifact that nearly destroyed the world-devouring monstrosity? Power. He wants to rule the world. Why does he want to rule the world? I don't know. No one knows. We don't know until the last 15 minutes of the game when he makes his whole appearance known in the first place as the villain. So mm-hmm. what I'm trying to push away from is as much as you can play with the trope, as much as you can play with the ideas inherent into the fantasy, the queen who orders the hunter to kill Snow White wants Snow White dead because Snow White is a rival to her status. If Snow White lives, the queen will never be queen or remain queen. So mm-hmm. in that sense, what does Tarek want? What is this specific thing he wants? It doesn't have to be an object or an item, but it has to be a thing he wants that he has to achieve now. Ah, uh, okay. I think I have a good idea. <laughs> okay. Um, so going back to her background, since she's a princess, um, and she, she, by bloodline, she is a princess, and she is alive. She is not dead, so to speak she rules some sort of kingdom and i don't again i don't haven't clarified that but point being she rules a kingdom she has a right to rule a kingdom mm-hmm. whatever kingdom her parents came from which she doesn't know and he wants to rule that kingdom that's what he wants to own that's what he wants to take over and this kingdom he has had his sight set on for a really long time based upon either it's because of the people or because of what the people do um, what kind of what kind of uh, qualities they possess, or it could just be um, it could be that they they make something that is just very very valuable in the world itself to all kinds of different races. So I guess the real horror here is that Tarek is a symptom; he's not an agent. The dragon ignores him because ultimately, at the end of the day, Tarek as a being doesn't matter. What Tarek mm-hmm. does and why, what infects him, what possesses him is important. But what Tarek, who Tarek was as an individual is not the thing that matters or ultimately matters in the story. What that means then is Tarek was just a way in for something else. Whatever that something else was that gave him the idea or that helped him find that idea, that's what's going to change the world. And I have a suggestion for where that idea could potentially go next. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that is this. Have you ever heard, it's another fairy tale concept or a mythic concept, the king and the land are one. Uh, the idea is that a good king and um, will, you know, the, the lands belonging to a good king will become better just because he's there. If a king gets sick, the lands will become sick with him. It ties into it, notions of divine right and the lands being granted to you by the spirits of the deity. So you appease them, they give you rule and rulership over the land, but if you do not take care of it well, you affect the world, the, the life of the world itself. Exactly. Now, M is, by bloodline, the ruler of this kingdom. She is dead, but the, it cannot, the, the role cannot pass on to someone else. Correct. What does that do to this kingdom? So mm. Tarek is just the means to unseat M so that the kingdom itself can be receptive to what's next. So right. There can be a space in the world for whatever has to, wants to arrive there. In other words, there had to be a cut, there had to be a wound in the skin for an infection to go through. Right. Tarek may not have intended that to open up, but whatever infected him is going to take... Gotcha. That's um, just a suggestion, though. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm just playing it over my head. The, I think the arc of Tarek... And the dragon and the resolution of the chase and removal of him, it feels like if the dragon is the end of a book of a of arc one or of book one, the reveal mm-hmm. of Tarek, the, the the removal of him, and the discovery that ultimately at the end, fine, we go back to our kingdom, we're going to reclaim it, and you get there, and the place you've expected to be there, the one waiting for you, you've defeated the villain, you pick up your crown, you have your prince or your princess or whatever you're with at that point that's going to rule with you. And you arrive, and it's a waste. It's wrong. It's strange. Something is not the exactly. way it's supposed to. And you realize all of this time you've spent chasing or being chased by Tarek was in many ways just a tangent. Yep. It's not that it doesn't matter. It did matter. But you are fighting something far darker and weirder and stranger than you, bought, than you anticipated. Yeah, it actually hits a perfect balance. Tarek was an evil a new alien strangeness that needed to be stopped, absolutely needed to be stopped. But he wasn't the ultimate of, uh, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't uh, like, he wasn't the only thing. And there is, there are greater threats possibly because again, it's very suitably mythic created by both what M had to do to get away from him, the running and by and by what, what she had to do to beat him. In other words, the kingdom may be the greatest rift or place in which this can seep in, but she's created many others on the way. Along the way. Because, like Tarek, she lost regard for what else mattered around her. As, as I suggested earlier, in many ways, she is just as dangerous as he is. She's right. not just as malicious as he is. Right. So she is just as dangerous. And those kingdoms around her, those places around her who see her place of rule falling apart and to see what she's done, how willing do you think they're going to be to let her explain? Not willing try? at all. <laughs> hmm. Also, I really like the idea of this dragon being free now. I mean, at the end of his life, possibly not even in dragon form. And just right. kind of being this commentary for the rest of the stories. Oh, he, he is totally the grumpy old companion. Right. <laughs> even if it's something simple, even if it's, even he's reduced to some kind of weird, frumpy little familiar. Right. <laughs> and maybe that's too kind of the fascinating thing, because you think he's going to die, and he does, but he changes into something else. Or, they, or M makes a choice that allows him to stay in some fashion. And maybe that's part of her power she hasn't truly understood until, or won't until later, as she right. stands between what is dead and what is not. At that doorway, maybe she can grab things that are along the way. 
you've actually you're you're just about um, to hit a, a very interesting theme. If Tarek is all about killing to get what you want, and M is very much being driven towards a position where she's going to have to kill to get what she wants, and thus become in many ways like in a in a storytelling standpoint become like uh, um, Tarek. The choice that she makes could um, that that changes the dynamic is for her not to kill but to change. And then that could manifest in the form of changing the dragon. And that would be the thing that surprises it as well, because there was a truth that didn't anticipate. After all, how can you see, if you, if you can see all, can you see past your end? That, that is often a class. I have jokingly said on this podcast and others before, if Odin sacrifices his eye to the will of Mimer in order to see the future, does he later on, upon stumbling upon a rock, do that because he lacks perception or, as Dave suggested, because he knows he has to? Right. Because he's fated to. And in that sense, if the dragon knows all unpleasant truths, can it see past its own last one? Oh, that's a or good one. <laughs> is it surprised by the final one it receives? Right. This is not how this was supposed to happen. <laughs> right. Followed by dot, dot, dot. But I'm kind of okay with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, right. but, I'll, but I'll learn. Or followed by laughter. Yes. But you know what? I'll learn to live with it. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Right. <laughs> I actually, I could even see just like the. M's walking by there, and if it's just this little weird familiar thing gnawing on her head or something as she's walking down, <laughs> because it has to grow back into something that can speak again. Right, right, exactly. So yeah, she'll eventually have a dragon, and that will make people concerned. Well, she'll have something. It might yes. not be a dragon. But it will have the weight of one. Right. Because she saved that. And then again, that's the magic in the affect. Now, the, what is she preser- What is she choosing to save there? If it's not the dragon as itself, the big monstrous thing of tooth and claw and nature, what is the thing about it she chooses to save? Why does she value that? That reveals something about her. Or what of that does she value? And mm. also the question of okay, that she's going to change the dragon instead of killing him. You are going to have to figure out how to establish to the audience that this is something that can happen without giving away that this is something that can happen. I kind of am following, and then I'm kind of not. Okay, so you don't want to give away the the, the, the major... That's supposed to be, like, a triumphant thing. But right. if it comes out of nowhere, if no one had, like, had, had an idea, it would be along the lines of, uh, you know, in, ooh, I had a thermonuclear bomb in my backpack the entire time that I've never mentioned. And the audience would feel cheated if you won that way. They'd be like, how are we supposed to follow along? The story doesn't work. There's not a causality. So you have to establish that she is capable of changing things, that this is something her magic can do um, enough that when it happens, people accept it. And they're like, OK, yeah, that makes sense in the rules of the world that you've set up there. You have to. And this is partly foreshadowing. You have to let that slowly emerge. Right. I, it can't just be all at once. <laughs> right there. Dave and I have talked about this because it's something I've honestly struggled with in my own writing as a. If there are those full of fire and those who dream too much, why don't they just do it all the live long day? What are the rules? What are the constraints, emotional as well as physical or psychological? And also the prices they pay that prevent that. And as I started to understand that more, I could see why more often than not characters would refrain unless absolutely it was absolutely necessary. Or in some cases, they just felt on an emotional and personal level, I have to do this now, no matter the price I pay. And if it is going to be a sacrifice of some kind, 
For instance, if a character... Well, let's take this, for example. I read Tad Williams' original series, Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn. There's a knight, Sir Camaris, who loses his memory, and he's happier that way, because everything he remembers of his old life makes him miserable. However, he is the only one capable of wielding one of the three magic swords left in the world, which, for as best they can tell upon translating this ancient prophecy, are necessary to defeat the Storm King, who is, who is in this undead horror coming back to life. And I might, I might be revealing a few spoilers here to a very old series, for which I apologize to Tad, because I think it's a fun surprise. But you're left wondering most through most of the story how three magic swords can slay something that's already dead, right? There has to be some rule they themselves break. Right. What eventually becomes explained, or eventually... So here's the initial sacrifice, or here's the sacrifice in book two. They have to, if they want this sword thorn to be wielded well, bring Camaras back his memories. But the price they pay is that he has to remember who he is. And the character who forces that upon him does not understand fully the weight of that until the very end of the last book, when it's revealed that this man grieves for the loss of the mother of his child, who was the queen. This man was the servant to the king. He betrayed his master. He watched his wife, or he watched his lover die, and he's had to watch their child, the younger of the two princes, grow up in the shadow of his half-brother this entire time. Here's the thing about Camaris. This man served the old ancient king who died. There are two princes, Josu and Elias. Elias is the older. And they're described throughout the entire story as being so different in so many ways. Body language, physical appearance, demeanor. And if you're reading, you begin to realize that this character, this knight, Camaris, has a lot of the similar behaviors to Joshua. It doesn't take a, it doesn't take a genius to think, well, maybe there might be some relation there. So when it's revealed at the very end, one is not surprised, but it is inevitable and it's painful. Because he has forced the loss of this love, the loss of his own child, upon this man a second time, and then asked him to die for what he, the son, needs and desires. As to why the swords are needed, right? the way they're crafted breaks the rules of the world. They are essentially something that is trying to ref- fight back against the world, pulling them back into the shape they're supposed to have. They should not exist while they do. And that violation itself creates so much potential that when the three swords are finally brought together, they create this tiny little hole in the world that's just wide enough for the impossible to come through, for the villain, in a sense, to turn back time to when he was once again alive, and thus rule. But in order to do so, he had to create the one circumstance that allowed him to violate all the rules of the world. And by the time it occurs, you go, oh, well, that makes sense. I know how the swords work, how they were crafted, the things people do and don't understand about them, that they were made by violating the rules of the world. And those kind of smaller truths need to be in place. If M can change things, we need to see that she can change things or that things can be changed somehow, and then that she is capable of that, that she doesn't be, at first understand it, but that others call her on it or notice it or notice how it is different or strange. And then maybe right. later we begin to start seeing the price that is paid for that. Oh, yes. I think a couple of events that have to happen somewhere at some point she, like, and I would say probably for the midway point of the book, roughly speaking, uh, she has to unleash something she can't control and something that horrifies people that is unlike what most people can do. It might be something that gives her, uh, that, that lets her escape. So it's a good thing, but there should be some real, hold on, what just happened there? 
what you know, and it should hint at what she's capable of. Maybe she created a creature that is going to stalk the knights for some time. And it's something new and it's something terrible. And it's not a killer again, because she hasn't made that choice yet. Or maybe actually, maybe she brought something back. Mm-hmm. Maybe she, maybe she, uh, like it's it maybe established that she is capable of killing something. Maybe established that she is capable of making things work the other way. But then neither one of those is the path. It um, sounds to that, me then like her actual power is going between the two places. She's very liminal. Yes. And that until she learns how to control what goes through where and why and how. Oh, no, forget okay. that. Okay. We always have these. No, no, sorry, I'm not. I didn't mean to cut you no, off. No, no, good. It's not a good idea. We have tons and tons and tons of stories where people have to learn to control their powers. Her challenge might legitimately be, yeah, this is power, but. How do I control me? Power to, yeah, I, yeah, this is not a power to be used. It's like, I can do it, but there's something else I could do that's better. And that's where the real power lies. You know, this, so you, so you get to have all the fun of the foreshadowing of look what she's capable of doing. And it's great. It's a great cover for the real thing, which is a power that you're hinting at even more subtly underneath. In that sense, yes, she can change the dragon instead of slaying it, but the world cannot go back. She has opened a doorway there. She's created a path. She has done something fundamental that ended the way the world was supposed to be. And they have to, the audience has to, to know that, to see it, even if it's in a subtle, quiet fashion. If perhaps as she's walking away, the color, the vibrancy itself starts to leach away. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at, for instance, the Full Metal Alchemist, the rule of the idea of equivalent exchange, you can get what you want, but you must always give something for that. Mm-hmm. So if we're playing off of a rule like that, if she wants life, it has to come from somewhere else. If she wants to save a life, it comes from somewhere else. It doesn't have to be that twist per se, but there needs to be some kind of permanent ramification. There's always a cost. What that cost is is up to you, but it always has to make it always has to make some kind of sense. Right. And this right. Is partly why we play we were gonna probably think for the next session episode play the one of the there's the kind of games we play on Outer Worlds. When things go wrong, or when you are often asked in these kinds of games to pay a price, the person guiding you through the story doesn't necessarily have to make that happen now mm-hmm. or to you. Which actually brings up an interesting question. Uh, we are, we're uh, pretty much coming to the end, so I'm going to wrap this up in just a moment. But I want to ask yeah. one final question that leads into the story in her childhood, the, the encounter with the Huntress and the first encounter with, that she's aware of, at least, uh, with the trickster. Up to you later on whether there has been one before or not. Mm-hmm. So we've spent a lot of time talking about the, the death of her changeling and, and what this does to her, assuming... Going forward with that, that is something that happens. Is it something that has happened? Before. Yeah, well, is it something that's happened, like, in this scene? Has it already happened, or has it not happened yet? Does it happen much later on in her childhood? Hmm. Which doesn't mean that she won't have any powers from it. They, you know, from, from it, the fact that it will eventually... I, faded. Yeah. I just I, I just saw the price she pays in the first book to, her, to change the dragon. <laughs> The changeling comes back. It's her body, her shape, but it's not. <laughs> but it's not M inside it. It's the dragon. No, it could be, perhaps. But I think, if anything, it's something from a long time ago and far away. Mm. So 
now there is another M out there because there was there was another M out there. And I don't know. I'm I feel like we I feel like we have to come full circle somehow. The changeling paid the price for her and now she has to pay the price for it. Ooh, yes. That makes perfect ooh, I like that. Because that feels like a fae rule to me. Right. We gave you our child. What do, when do we get back? Mm-hmm. And that could even explain how she changes the dragon and why it happens, because her powers had been all about, you know, crossing the boundary between life and death. And if she completely and utterly turns her back on that power and separates herself from it, that means that uh, she has undone something. The source of her power was the fact that she was dead and yet alive. In, in rejecting that power, she becomes alive and yet alive. And that means, I mean, which is to say the changeling has to come back. It is forced right. back. Because that was right. her death. And right. who knows what that creature is or what it's like. It could be the changeling itself or it could be something else inside it. It could be a version of her that never rejected the, uh, the power. And so it, the, the changeling itself is the that is dead yet alive. And she's the version that is alive yet alive. It's really fun to say the version that is alive yet alive. <laughs> I have to say. Oh, uh, just right. just imagine coding for that conditional as an optional choice in the game. <laughs> uh, but I did want to ask if you think, uh, like, when in her life do you think the changeling actually dies? Is it before she goes into hiding? After she goes into hiding? You know, does oh. it happen before she meets the trickster the first time? It'll probably be before she um, goes into hiding. Okay, so it has already happened, and that's yes. what precipitates sending her into hiding well then i think as far as our our game session is concerned uh you have your answer of where her powers are coming from uh probably not manifesting fully yet but you have some ideas of what she is capable of doing which it's fascinating i remember in the in the workshop session we had there was this idea that the trickster had been watching her for a while to observe and understand why this was happening so here it's it can see and sense and understand a phenomena that some part of the world is not as it should be, and this child is the source of it, or a portion of it. It's been studying her, and now here it is in its hands. Here she is asking to be saved. There's the huntress that would slay her, who would slay her, and they're on the run. I think on that note, we shall bring this session to an end. Uh, I want to thank you both uh, for, for joining us tonight. Uh, this has been Otter Worlds. I'm David Herman, a.k.a. Ramnes' Brothers Herman, and I have been joined by... I'm Jared Zerf, host of Your Be Tigers, and here with me today is... And I am B of the Internet. And thank you both for being here. Uh, we will return uh, in the future to... Um, we are going to be attempting to do one of the first scenes of uh, M's life, or of her story, um, and we're going to be using the game Masks to play out a scene in that. So I invite you all to listen then. Thank you very much, and good night. See you all next time. A good story can excite us, yes. But the best ones, fiction or not, compel, inspire, or drive us toward the hope that we need for a better life. Remember, you don't need to know everything right now, but you do need to write. So make sure to like, review, and subscribe to us at Here Be Tigers. And until next time, take life by the tail.